0: podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of Old Testament and dean of students, Dr. Peter Lee, and academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keane. And we all just got back, folks, from the annual theological conferences this year were held in Denver. So that's evangelical theological society, American Academy of religion and society of biblical literature and the American Oriental. What is it? The American center for Oriental research. ASOR It's oh, yeah. also there. It's IBR. not the center. IBR. IBR American IBR. schools. Of biblical research. Yeah. IBR. Yeah, so IBR. all kinds of, all kinds of conferences and they have all kindly gotten together to hold these conferences in the same location, so we don't have to hop around. And some of us were there for most of the conferences. Some of us were just there for the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, which was the first to be held of all of them, so that was last week. And so we're going to reflect a little bit on conferences, conference-going and um, the value therein. How, how's that for a good general overview? Some of you may... I've had multiple people at church and in the school ask me, so what do you guys yeah, what do you actually do there? Do there? Mm-hmm. All right. So someone someone, start us off. What do you do there?
1: Well, what about we start out with maybe a potential objection, right? Okay, so we're all studying the Bible. We're all Christians and the Bible is for God's people, okay. right? So... um. Doesn't this mean that the Bible could be read by everyone? Why do we need a elite, quote-unquote, theological society, whether at SBL or ETS, to read the Bible? How are we creating a sort of new priesthood of academics rather than you know, the older clergy and order? So is this just a replacement of that kind of understanding of a hierarchy of um, access to the Bible?
0: Yeah. So what does this mean? What what does this have to do with the perspicuity of Scripture?
1: Intellectual brokers, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what do you think? Having posed the well, question,
1: well, I want to ask the biblical as, as exegetes. Chief,
2: as the chief intellectual broker <laughs> in this, ask podcast, the one
1: ask the one who's dependent <laughs> upon the exegetes in this room and reading the Bible. And this is
2: St. is queen of the sciences.
1: Well, that's true enough. So oh, you know,
2: but have but a
0: conversation again. <laughs>
1: I, the queen depends on her subjects now. Oh, right, right, right. So gracious.
0: <laughs> Dr. Sutanto, no. so gracious with us. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, this is broader question is what's the value of theological study at all at this kind of academic level? And, you know, I find i I often find that when I'm at the conferences that I'll hear multiple papers or panels that will have all kinds of devotional value for me as I kind of grow in my understanding of scripture. And I, and I learn more about it. Um, you know, because of the finitude of human knowledge and the incredible expanse of the revelation of God, I actually think there's a strong incentive for, yes, Scripture's perspicuous for issues related to faith and salvation. And yet I can learn all kinds of stuff. I was sitting in on a session on warfare in the old Testament and it was fascinating just kind of digging into the issue, particularly the golden calf issue and uh, the judgment that came as a result of that. And it was fascinating just learning things about culture, society, observations of the text that I'd never seen before. And I think that's entirely it's entirely legitimate. It's, it's easy to have kind of an anti-intellectual stance where you say that that kind of study is, is uh, unneeded or somehow overly esoteric. And it can be that, but it's not that by definition.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I get the perspicuity of Scripture argument, but I, I, you know the confessional stance on that, and I'll leave this to our systematician, is actually f- very qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not all things alike are plain, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's a qualified statement that mm-hmm. incorporates, for example, or includes, for example, like you need to know the languages, you need to know about context and all of these kinds of things. And then also, I would just say, so that's kind of like the vertical dimension here, but then from the horizontal dimension, you one of the things that I've appreciated about conferences is I get to kind of, it's kind of like crowdsourcing it. I get to hear from other people's insights, other people's expertise. It's part of this, com- what makes conversation interesting, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I'm kind of thinking about the, converse, uh, the conferences in this conversational model, is that you have... Different voices that are contributing to one endeavor, one you know, interesting dialogue about about the word. So, hearing f- from you know, systematicians and biblical studies guys talking about the same topic. Or uh, I was at a conference. Uh, I was at a, at a paper talk about uh, Aquinas and the imagination because, which was a, an which was on an ethics panel but was interesting to me from a New Testament perspective. So you get those kind of cross conversations that are that you kind of realize the broader scope of, of human knowledge.
1: Yeah, so Westminster Confession of Faith 1 talks about the ordinary use of means, right? Which means that, you know, reading the Bible involves actually using commentaries, reading the mm-hmm. original languages, uh, making sure that you understand the grammar and the syntax, the context of the biblical text, and also... The history of interpretation the history of theological interpretation of the bible and i think so this academic study of the scriptures you know you're you're actually treating the bible as a text that has its own history and it needs interpretation that reading the bible and its perspicuity doesn't mean that the meaning immediately or instantaneously enters into your mind without effort uh, god does provide the meaning and god does illumine his church but just as god promising to give us what we need. You know, he doesn't put the food in our mouths automatically. We need to go farm. We need to go and and get the goods that we need to to produce the food that we eat and so forth. So it is with, with the scripture. So it is a divinely ordained text. It's God's word, but it's God's word in human form as well. And we need to take that into consideration. And I think another aspect of it that, that we need to come to, to our attention, we need to bring to our attention is the idea that if you believe that God's truth is available in this word and you want to therefore find this truth, this truth is only going to be uncovered as a corporate endeavor and through a corporate endeavor. So you want to subject your ideas to peer review. You want to subject your ideas to scrutiny. And so I think there is actually a kind of insidious pridefulness when you say to yourself, you know what, Um, the academy is just for them out there. I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to be confident that my own take of the Bible without even uh, subjecting it to public scrutiny. So I think because we are humble, we recognize that we're finite, we actually want to step into this discourse and and open ourselves up to public scrutiny, open ourselves up to public critique, if that
0: makes sense. Yeah, we talked a little bit about pastors in the past, like kind of dangerous things that pastors can fall into. And one of them was the pastor who says, you know, I only answer to God. I don't have to answer to humans, you know, and that kind of thing. That sounds kind of humble, but then as you start to kind of watch it, it becomes really basically a rationale for like arrogance and maybe even abuse. I feel like that's uh, what you just were talking about. It's kind of like the academic ancillary to that, you know, right. like I'm just, I'm reading the scripture in the spirit. I don't need peer review. Mm-hmm. Who's equipped to peer review me mm-hmm. a- apart from God alone or something like that. Right. Which according to scripture, that's why we need community. That's why we're supposed to be doing this in community. I often find that it's from, it's uh You know the paper section is interesting. It's good to hear people giving papers and to hear their their hard work. It's then the panel conversation where it gets really helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, I I saw that I had a did a paper and we were looking at what biblical theological foundations there might be for something like religious liberty. And it was in a mixed group of Americans, non-Americans, Reformed Baptists, Wesleyan, Pentecostal, uh, everyone kind of bringing their tradition to the bear to the fore. And the conversation was just fascinating. Hearing what what Wesleyan, uh, a Wesleyan brother thinks about what we were talking about, listening to other people coming from a British context or other contexts, talking about scripture and how, you know, where scripture kind of leads them. It's not just the scripture is so deep that I need other people to help me unpack it, but it's that human experience is so broad yeah. that I need other humans with other experiences helping open my eyes to blind spots and questions and that, that I'm not even asking, you know? And so all of that, I think, is super helpful in terms of these conferences.
1: So I think as a rule of thumb, too, um, as a principle, um, we should try our best to subject our thoughts and our work to public scrutiny rather than create an alternative stream of conversations, if that makes sense. I think yeah. because of... Silos. Silos, exactly, particular truths about God's general revelation, common grace, even subjecting it to public scrutiny who are not from the believing side of things, who are actually Mm -hmm. looking at the things from an unbelieving perspective and therefore would bring different questions to the table. Because of God's general revelation and common grace, they would oftentimes bring questions that we need to address and they would often observe things about theology and the text of scripture that we wouldn't even think about and we should take into consideration. I think the temptation is to create those silos when we think to ourselves, you know, um, well, if there's so much resistance out there, why should we subject our thoughts to them or something like that and And that's a sort of defeatist standpoint and and maybe in principle, something like that is necessary mm-hmm. um at particular junctures in history. but I think as a rule of thumb, it's always good to subject our thoughts into the mainline or mainstream sort of conversation as best as we can while holding on to our principal tradition standpoints, so if mm-hmm. that makes sense.
0: So that brings up an interesting dynamic between these conferences. You know, we have, uh, if you heard me mention them early on, we've got Evangelical Theological Society, which typically starts the Monday. So last Monday goes till Thursday. Um, to be a member of e- ETS, you have to kind of... A- you know, sign on to this statement of faith. You know, it's 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 going to be sort of Nicene Evangelical Christians for the most part that Tommy Keene's give me. Eh, well, I th- I think come you see, come saw. So. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Trinity plus scripture, scripture right? Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Okay. And then you have SBL, Society of Biblical Literature and American Academies of Religion, AAR, which is much bigger. Like yeah. on a, ma- you know, magnitude of uh, you know, three times or so. More, if not well, actually, counting AAR, it's going to be way more. Maybe. So I'm, I usually am only at SBL on the SBL side of things, and that's a much broader, broader group that'll have all different kinds of religions, including atheists and Christians, also of every stripe who identifies Christian but may or may not hold to any high view of scripture or, or even any high Christology. So you have a much broader group, and that's a different that's a different experience, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you guys you tell
2: the difference just on yeah. the day, <laughs> on changeover day, on Friday? The, yeah. The lobby looks and sounds yeah. and feels very, very different. different.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, The blazers and the khaki pants are not quite as evident <laughs> after Friday. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you have, a, you have a big change that happens. And actually in my field, you know, academic field, Semitic languages, you know, SBL has many more, many more sessions that are kind of in my academic area. So I actually didn't go to ETS mm-hmm. other than in part for many years. And now I've kind of moved over to ETS more because of my role here at the seminary and, and have enjoyed that, have known a ton of people. It's a smaller town compared to the city that comes into, <laughs> yeah. that comes in over the weekend. Uh, what are y'all's experiences uh, at ETS and SBL? Uh, what have was, you noticed or
3: observations? That was my experience too. Yeah. I mean, for years, uh, I didn't go to ETS um, and pretty much went to SPL because they—they uh, they really are more uh, well friendly to Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even this past ETS, yeah. uh, you saw that. Um, out.
0: You saw that really vividly.
3: Yeah, there was very few Old Testament sections. It was only one Hebrew language section, and even there it was very poorly attended. I guess I see that, in, and a part of me was initially kind of discouraged. And then I thought, well, here's room to contribute. You know, mm-hmm. Here's a place that could really, I think, benefit, um, uh, that that uh, that people like uh, like us yeah. can contribute and, and actually provide some type of a, a thought and and input into this into this area that, that is clearly lacking. But um um but it, at SBL there's such a larger section dedicated to scripture as a whole than old oh, Te- and Old Testament background. So we're mm-hmm. talking not just, you know, uh, uh
0: Hebrew, Aramaic, Syria, Githia. We're yeah. talking,
3: you know, Canaan, we're talking about Dead Sea Scrolls. We're mm-hmm. talking about a whole wide range of things that is areas of my training and 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 so so that's always been an area that I've gone to. I, I like you have been kind of regressing well not regressing, that's a bad way of describing. It. I have been kinda of going back to more evangelical settings since that is gonna be uh the primary area of dialogue and mm-hmm. interaction that, I, that yeah. I've been doing.
2: You're right that the New Testament gets a lot more attention and theological issues and uh interaction yeah. between the you know the scriptures and culture. I think some of those at ETS. At ETS, yeah,
0: that reflects kind of an evangelical stereotype too, doesn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so.
2: And, and but you know, as the as the New Testament guy in the room, that's really exciting. But mm-hmm. I will also say, you know, there there does seem to be a tendency to to avoid, uh, for example, linguistic kinds of questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, typology is even a bit the ETS a couple of years back was on Christ and all the scriptures. And, um, you know, I kind of found myself at the the edge of the kind of typology discussion that this that this kind of tradition of redemptive historical exegesis is a bit suspicious, you know, because it's not um, center of the circle, exegetical kind of thing. And so, yeah. you, you know, even, uh, even us New Testament guys, as in kind of a reform camp can find a little bit of um, pushback, I guess. But that's, I, you know, to the point at the beginning, I think that's really healthy. That's a healthy part of the process is yeah. not being siloed, which can happen, you know, in your whatever institution you're coming out of. That these interests, that your method is center of the circle. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, SBL just kind of blows that out of the water. You've got all sorts of different kinds of conversations that are going on can be very eye-opening.
1: And I think it, what, what's really helpful about these conferences, too, is that um, you, you remind yourself that academic theology or just interpretation of the Bible is a social endeavor. So I think sometimes when you when you're just writing in the corner of the library or in the corner of your room somewhere, and you're just writing and you're critiquing all these sorts of people, they're just caricatures in your mind. But actually going to these conferences help you, hey, everyone that you're engaging with here are real people. And they have these positions because of their own particular reasons. And oftentimes, I think without meeting them, it's kind of like the social media effect. You could just sort of blast someone on Twitter without actually knowing who they are. And you become more vicious in that way. By actually going to these conferences and meeting the people that you disagree with, you get to personalize them. And also, you get to dialogue with them such that you could understand them better. I remember, you know, talking to some students. And I I would say something to the effect of make sure that your papers and make sure that especially as PhD students too, that you're not just shooting arrows in the sky. First of all, you shouldn't think about your dissertation as shooting arrows at all. Um, <laughs> it should have a dialogue, right? But but if you're just sort of shadow boxing or shooting arrows in the sky, you're just critiquing people that might not even read the work or you might not even know and you might therefore misunderstand in that way. So going to this conference, does actually remind you, these are real people you should yeah. be engaging with and um, you should treat them as such. Yeah. Uh, apply yeah. the golden rule. And I think going to these conferences help you do that.
2: And I, I learned that there's a whole segment of the English-speaking world that pronounces it caricatures no, nope. yep. instead of caricatures. Well, oh, okay. There we
0: go. It rhymes with ligature. Ligature. Caricature. Yeah, no. caricature.
3: Well, I don't know if I can hang out with people like that. <laughs> I know. It's
2: hard. It's hard. But it's a diverse
3: body. It'd be like a scratch on my back I can't reach. <laughs>
0: So that raises the question, the relationships and the relational dynamics at these conferences. So now now let's pull back the veil, because we've talked about all the benefits of the conferences, but like all human social groups, it's also fallen and bears the marks of the fall. So it's too much of a theological introduction or something. No, this is perfect. Yeah, um, spiritualize it. Brother. Yeah, yeah, man. So I remember, I mean in, in these academic communities are the same. You have all the same dynamics you'd expect in any other industry. And I was kind of surprised by that as a young academic. Most of us got to remember, most of us begin our time at these careers or these conferences because we're going in order to do interviews to get into PhD programs. And I can remember my first one in Atlanta running from meeting to meeting across Mm -hmm. the Hyatt and the Marriott and all those, those downtown hotels, you know, sweating underneath, underneath my suit and tie so that I could meet with different scholars to interview. And that maybe it's because it starts off that way for so many of us. But there is this kind of, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, that dog eat dog kind of sense of, of academic conferences. Mm-hmm. Or Some might even say that academic conferences are maybe even given a little bit more to pettiness yeah. than other conferences. Because
2: well, maybe it doesn't end with just the PhD because then it's yeah. the next step, which is finding an actual job. And then it's the next step which is getting an article published. And then it's the next step, which is publishing the book. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like it just keeps yeah. it doesn't actually stop. Yeah. So, yeah. and I, I, you can be pretty, it can feel like a very cynical kind of process. And it's a vicious
1: cycle too. You can't get the job unless you have a book published, but you can't get a book published unless you got a job because publishers won't talk to you. So what do you do? Yep. You can just sort of wallow in the corner of the room maybe, but that, that's one definitely a, a particular cynical take. And,
0: and like it or not, it's easier to get a job or to get the book published if the well-published scholar endorses you yep. or connects you with the publisher. And so there is this, you know, I remember early on, once you get past the kind of starstruckness of meeting these scholars whose names you've only seen in print, and then you start to realize they're not just big names, they're gatekeepers in many ways. And there's academics just as anywhere else, you know, there's gate, there's gatekeeping going on. You like, you like the idea. We like to think that the best ideas bubble to the top, but that's usually not the case in, in American social settings. You have gatekeepers, you have people who open doors and people who close doors. And it creates this whole element around where are you in the hierarchy and the social structure of the academic community.
2: Yeah. And I, I, as somebody who's always been a bit of a cynic when it comes to that kind of thing and, and, and finds the like networking approach a bit distasteful, there's a, there's a number of things that over the last 20 years really have been breaking down. I don't know if that's a gen Xer or what what's yeah. generating that, but uh, a couple of things that have broken that down for me and helped me to kind of reframe what we're doing at a conference like this, or well, actually one of the things was a friend who pulled me aside. Uh, kind of during the seminary years, uh, at the end, you know, as I'm kind of switching to transitioning to looking for for a pastorate, he said, "Tommy, there's you think that there's two calls, the internal call and the external call." And he said, "There's actually three. There's the internal call, the external call, and the phone call." <laughs> and it it, it kind of helped me to think, oh, yeah, you know, I, there actually is some practical. The world we live in, we need to be. Uh, as Paul puts it, we need to be savvy. We need to know how to navigate the structures and strictures of the present world, and and part of that is taking initiative, and and that's a valuable asset. And and making the phone call on the conference side of things, you know that idea of networking. Um, I kind of look at that, and I'm I'm fairly cynical about it. But then I look at Romans 16, and what is Paul doing? He's Connecting people who don't know each other together. He's he's saying, "Hey, greet this person and listen to this person." And they did this in in Asia. You can be a part of that. So he's he's actually connecting mm-hmm. people that are potentially partners to do something bigger than each of them can do as an individual. Yeah. So I, I have a couple little like biblical, metaphorical ways of thinking about and that ne- that yeah. kind of breaks down and the networking. cynicism.
0: Yeah, and I remember coming in and and for this first few years. Trying so hard to kind of break through in terms of networking, you know, to work the relationships that I had while also doing coursework at Catholic University and really just, you know, getting beat around in that whole thing. And I remember as actually I found myself as one of those kind of weird turn of events that happens at these conferences, where I found myself having lunch with a very senior scholar who I was very much wanting to connect with, right? And as we sat and chatted, and it was just in the hallway. This is in Baltimore. It's funny. I always, you know, always remember, like what city were you in when this conversation happened? This is in the Baltimore one. SBL, and sitting in the hallway, and he was just sharing with me some issues his family was having. And I was reminded, like, yes, there are those people out there who are kind of using the power di- dynamic, and they're getting high on their own supply and all that stuff. Yeah, you, ha- you have those kind of academics. Right. But for the most part, these are just humans, right? And all of a sudden, there's this kind of like, I kind of, kind of let all the steam out for me. And I was able to just have relationships in a way that I think was very unhealthy before as kind of a young scholar in those first few years. that I was able to start enjoying the conferences more and really just take it as an opportunity to get to know these people who are really interesting folks with uh, who the Lord's gifted with really great minds. And you get to kind of grow in your, you know, grow as they grow in their knowledge.
2: It's, you know, and, and, and remind yourself, you know, if you're intimidated, remind yourself that outside of this little room, mm-hmm. you know, all the big fish with a big entourage, no. this is a very, this is a very small fishbowl and no. um, can, you can walk around with a crowd here, but nowhere else, no. nowhere else. No. If you are the cynical type, you can remind yourself.
1: Yeah, I think also just recognizing that godliness, therefore, and having a full orb vision of what it means to live a well-lived life. It's not just like between you and God in this individualistic way. I mean, Scott, the way you were talking <clears> about <throat> this, it's about relationships at the end of the day. And in these sorts of conferences, you're recognizing that, that justifying yourself in the academic sense isn't just about having good ideas, but also just presenting yourself as someone who can contribute as a dialogue partner to others, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, actually, Coming to the conference with an open mind of having these conversations and learning from people is really really important but but there is that sense of like oh am I you know your your insecurity can get the, the best of yourself and you can think to yourself am I presenting myself in the best way you know as I was walking around in Denver last week I was thinking I really feel like we're living in an honor shame society right now yeah because as people are are looking at you they're looking at where did you do your PhD or, you know, yeah. uh, what institution yeah. are you teaching in or are you in an institution and so forth and so on. And the honor-shame dynamics change from ETS to SBLAR, But there's almost this like you got to resist this temptation to fall into this trap of this person is only valuable insofar as mm-hmm. they can contribute to my career. And their, and their
0: external effect in the world, vis to be my career, my academic career.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And the honor-shame effect of that is that you judge the person solely by their collective association with something else rather than on their own merits, if that makes sense. And these sorts of conferences remind you that we are very much tempted to think in those ways as well, just as anywhere else. And um, we have to resist just thinking about things in terms of a ladder for my own self sake and, and think more in terms of relationships. And then by doing that, you're also recognizing those others who are thinking relationally the way that you want to think relationally. And that's when a, f- a solid partnership could happen um, in AR as much as ETS and vice versa. So um, by having that change of mindset, you, you tend to spot those who have that mindset as well.
2: Well, like practical tips, Gray. Like how, how do we do that? How do we maintain a a kind of generous spirit, I guess, at at these things and not just thinking about looking up upward mobility kind of idea.
1: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this is where the gospel comes in, right? Um, believe that you are justified by faith alone and by grace alone, and it is Christ alone who gives you righteousness. And so there's nothing in you that grants you any sort of merit um, before the sight of God. And so if your identity is merited by grace alone and hence is no merit at all, um, how dare you treat anyone differently? So I think people use the gospel. Um, I, I think it would be a mistake to make the gospel just, oh, because I'm justified in the Lord, I could just live on my own and I don't care what anyone else out there is doing. You know, that that's, that's misconstruing the gospel and making it into an individualistic sort of idea. But I think the gospel actually connects you with others. It has a vertical and horizontal dimension. It connects you to become a more... Um, organic catalysts for other people, if that makes sense. So I think that's just my own reminder to myself. And secondly, I think as well that that recognizing what Scott there said that everybody here are human. They're feeling exactly what you're feeling. And oftentimes when I do meet someone who's like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, I have this sense of I'm gonna, I'm gonna only interact with people who could help me in my career, um, I can sort of sympathize with them at the same time and not just think of them well. This person is just my enemy then or something like that because I'm tempted to think that way. And secondly, I know that they're also insecure oftentimes and I can try to break down that ladder climbing mindset, Lord willing, right? Um, and, and sometimes it does happen and other times it doesn't happen. So those are some practical ideas.
0: Yeah, and I even think it's – I think it's gotten better. I mean you mentioned the Gen X thing and I don't know if it is generational. I think things have gotten a little bit better and that the – old system of hierarchies have at least it's become less seemly to be so explicit or obvious Uh, Gen Xers have 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 torn
2: the the Uh, system down
0: for good or for real (laughs) right I mean this idea though yeah this this idea of right being too self-aggrandizing that doesn't mean it doesn't happen but I've been going for about 20 years now and it seems like it's changed
3: yeah
0: Mm. um in in good ways and probably in bad ways, too, I also feel like it's in terms of just the sheer breadth of stuff that's mm-hmm. getting talked about, that has full sessions dedicated to it. And sometimes I'm like, this is very loosely connected to anything like a society or Bible or literature. And yet somehow, yeah, but it's at this conference. Um, you know. But anyways, I just... Th- that's that's also another thing. There's a much wider range, and that probably reflects the fragmentation that we see all around us in society too. There's much ri- wider range of areas of of study. Um, but yeah, it has seemed it does seem to me a little bit like it's changed. But I even noticed, kind of on your point, Gray. You know, I noticed there are people at the conferences who I've come to know are like places of rest too. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. you're walking around, you're networking. Yep. And I thought I there there were older scholars who became that for me. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I, w- I want to be that too. You know, I want to be that for someone. I want to be a place where you can come and there's a human there waiting to talk. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's kind of, you know, whatever, be the change you want to see in the world right. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's one of the things <laughs> that, um, you know, that that I've tried to do a little bit is be a place where a younger scholar can come talk, ask advice about, you know getting jobs and connecting with people and being sort of a, you know, a, a force for good, not a force for reifying the system. It's mm-hmm.
2: interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about the, those places of rest for me and where, what what are, what are the characteristics of scholars like that? And it, and it, I think gray to your point, it's that in those kinds of conversations, usually because it's the mindset of the other person, uh, I don't feel like I'm being evaluated mm-hmm. by every sentence. You know, you yeah. don't. You, it, it feels like a grace-centered, friend-centered kind yeah. of of moment that we do have this mutual trust in one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, cultivating that uh, uh, oh, what the Bible calls just grace gracefulness, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, can be a great way of developing the change you want to see. Yeah.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's important to remind yourself that it's not just at ets that you find these places of rest it's also very possible at arsbl okay. um, abs- absolutely
0: yeah i remember in san diego a few years ago walking down the street and asor yeah. had just left out let out and they were having a there's a reception at a restaurant and i saw a face that i knew it was a guy from my church mm-hmm. um and i ran into him and i just we just slipped right into that Right into conversation, this kind of comfort, you know, of just seeing a friendly face on the other side of the country. And it's a great thing. I think, yeah, a lot of it is listening, someone who can listen, someone who sees you, who hears you. They're not looking over your shoulder. And that can be tough because sometimes you are in a gathering where you like, I need to talk to that publisher over there. And you're on your way and you run into somebody. Right. And that's a real spiritual discipline, not to look over the shoulder, like not to not to be trying to get up, move on, and get out, get out of the conversation, yeah. actually to hear and, and to listen to a person. And it's really important. And people did it for me, and it was a great help, and it's something and, I try to do too.
1: And as you discover who these generous spirits are, even if you disagree with them theologically and in the scholarship, you actually end up wanting to support them more than the people you agree with, yeah. who are maybe a little bit less of that sort of spirit. So is
0: there a cinematic analogy that we could apply to these different kinds of people?
1: There's probably a cinematic analogy, right? I mean, you you either end up
0: <laughs> I'm trying to draw something <laughs> out here. You either end up a Jedi <laughs> or
1: a Sith, is that? Yeah, a yeah. Jedi or oh, Sith. Yeah, That's, That's right. It. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, well, and then you realize too, oh, you know, this this guy's a Baptist, but he's a Jedi. So, you know, um <laughs> He's okay. He's, he's you know, a Baptist. And you know, when you actually end up supporting their work, you want them to flourish in such a way where this personality who is very, very attractive and generous and Christ-like, right, actually gets support. And if, if, if that's the sort of person that you want to support, you actually end up, that informs your scholarship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to engage, this is my dialogue partner. This is who I want to be the, in dialogue with.
0: The Jedi is the one who's using his gifts to bring others along, train them up and send them out, right? Yes. And the Sith is the one who uses the people around him to feed his own agenda. Yeah,
1: it's a, the Sith is a tribe maker. Um, and is defensive, and the Jedi is the one who's saying, you know, even if you disagree with me, come and look at the Force with me together. You know, that makes sense. Uh, It doesn't matter what the color of your lightsaber is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What kind of kyber crystal it uses, is that the right term? Yeah, the
1: Siths make sure that you have a red lightsaber. I feel like we've taken a hard left turn, gentlemen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is from me who haven't seen any of the original Star Wars. What? I just know the lightsaber colors. Wait, what? Yeah, never, so...
0: Okay. Oh, I've wow. seen episode three. So you're a Sith, is what you're saying. Oh, wow.
2: <laughs> you heard it here first.
1: Yeah. I've seen episode three and bits of the the others. There you go. Yeah. So I know the colors. And I know that the Jedi have different colored lightsabers, and they're fine with it. But all the Siths need a red color.
0: <laughs> and only the Sith deal in absolutes.
1: Uh, well, uh, which is itself an absolute. Yeah. yeah. Um, enough.
3: you taking a left turn Yeah. So
1: the Jedi are secure <laughs> enough to have different colors.
3: Well, this us The Jedi wants unity in back university. I don't know how.
0: Save us. So
1: Sip wants uniformity. <laughs>
3: You're there not
0: savable. We should bring okay. this. We should b- land the plane by asking. You know, we, we need another perspective on theological conferences, and
3: uh, from the family at home.
0: What about? We, we have a live studio audience <laughs> for this episode, friends. Uh, an audience of one, as people say. It was only an audience of one. And in this case, the one is indeed a. Kind of feel like we've been our own sutanto. audience. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Every year, uh, our spouses have to let us go to the theological conferences for from a three days to a week away mm-hmm. from home. What, what, what are your thoughts? What do you notice about Gray at the the theolo- after in, in, in this season of theological conferences?
2: He becomes a very different person. <laughs> but it's also an opportunity to travel around the uh, around the country. Um, you know, as a spouse, I, I got to visit uh, San Diego, and it was nice. Get to work there for a little bit in coffee shops, meet people here. Um, I remember being at a Starbucks, and just a couple of people would pass by and talk about, I don't know, the conference. It was just interesting. You know, you're in a different world in a way. So... Yeah.
0: that's great yeah i've right the uh, good point in that the conference is 10 times better if you're able to bring your spouse with you or you were able to bring kara yeah kara
2: came yeah
0: um this past week mm-hmm. so yeah and were you in san diego when we yeah. when we interviewed him
2: you were there. whoa
0: she this is there. another big reveal
1: <laughs> yeah she was there
0: this is uh this is yeah didn't know this yeah that's great San Diego's great. So yeah, some, some conference locations are better, than, better than, than others. Let's not name names.
2: <laughs> <laughs> for those of us that have to look at where our readers or our listeners come from. But let's just say San Diego is the best place for yeah, conferences.
0: Okay. <laughs> not bad place. Fair enough. Not bad. Yeah. I don't mind Denver. Thank you, Indita, for participating um, without any warning. Brothers, sister, it's been great to have this conversation. Look forward to it next time. Don't yep. forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast where wherever find podcasts are distributed. And if you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. And if you'd like to pose a question, we have a couple in the, in the doc that we need to pull out. Um, But if you'd like to pose a question, go to the show notes for this episode, and you can see a link there where you can post a question for the faculty to answer at a future time. So look forward to being with y'all again next week. Until then, take care.